as I did the 200 thing challenge, I started thinking about it in this count way instead. Like, does this item count? Is it something that matters to me? Is this something I want to fit in my life? Not just will it physically fit in the space? And I think the most interesting thing that happened to me in that experience was that I found I was suddenly a lot less attached to my belongings. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Lena Menard. Lena is a designer, builder, consultant, and small space dweller. Through her commitment to small, smart housing, she focuses on accessory dwelling units, known as ADUs, tiny houses, and co-housing. Lena, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, Lena, how do you define what is a tiny house? You know, it's so fascinating because the definition seems to shift around a little bit. When Jay Schaefer wrote his book, Small Home, he defined a small house as any house in which all the space was used well, which I think is a really lovely definition. And it's interesting because it it is variable, right? It depends on the number of people occupying a dwelling, et cetera, et cetera. But interestingly, ever since the tiny house appendix was added to the residential building code, we actually have official definitions. So most places in the country, a tiny house is defined as a space that's 400 square feet or smaller, though some municipalities have chosen to expand that a little bit and go up to 600 square feet. And how is an accessory dwelling unit or ADU different from a tiny house? One of the things that's interesting is that typically a tiny house is not permanently connected with a primary dwelling. Tiny house, if it is on wheels, for instance, might be parked in someone's backyard, but an accessory dwelling unit is always in relation to another space. So an ADU is always accessory to or secondary to smaller than another home. So an ADU might be a backyard cottage or it might be a basement apartment. It might be an addition on an existing home. It might be an attic. It might be a carve out, which is where you take a couple of rooms inside an existing house and make it its own unit. So ADUs are always in relationship to another dwelling. A tiny house might be a ground-bound standalone house in the woods somewhere. It might be a tiny house on wheels in the driveway on a city block in a busy city. It could be in a variety of different places. Tiny houses often have a a relationship with the other buildings around them, but not necessarily, whereas an ADU is always related to another building. For listeners, I met Lena eight or nine years ago when she was teaching an ADU design course in Portland. And what's really awesome to be reconnecting now is that I'm finally building my ADU here in Bozeman in my backyard. So it's very exciting. So excited for you, Kristen. And I've been having a really great time working with a local design build firm here called Holding Ground. And uh, if Ethan and Tripp are listening, a big shout out to them. It's been really fun to work with them. And I don't know if it's been fun to work with me. I'm the one who like can't stop researching and getting all these ideas. And I have this inspiration deck that started off with 90 slides and it can't stop growing. And now all I can talk about is composting toilets. So what's your take on composting toilets, Lena? Oh, fun question. You know, I am a huge fan of composting toilets. And the primary reason for that is that we historically, our species has had a little bit of a mixed relationship with how we handle what comes out of our bodies and what we put into our bodies. And it 
used to be in many places throughout the world and many different cultures that we had a way of processing and working with what's called humanure, which is manure that comes out of people instead of manure that comes out of chickens or horses or cows. And, you know, we used to have this relationship in which we used humanure to grow plants, to grow plants that were ornamental or grow, you know, if it was handled properly, even plants that would be food for us to eat again. And we have broken that elegant solution and made two really big problems out of it. One is that we have a problem with waste and sanitation. And in terms of handling it, what we do is we poop in our drinking water and then we take a ton of time, energy, and money to get it clean to drinking water quality again. So that's one problem. The other problem that we have is that we have a fertilizer and nutrients and nutrition problem in our world. And we're using a lot of petrochemical fertilizers or using fertilizers from other species that might be carrying diseases that then result in things like E. coli outbreaks. We're not managing either of these things in ways that are a closed loop cycle. And, you know, in one of my permaculture classes, I learned that we produce about the same amount of nutrients in our waste, so-called waste every year that is needed to grow the food that we eat in a given year. So it's almost a perfect one-to-one relationship. And when I learned that, I started fertilizing my garden with urine and I started learning about humanure because it just seemed to me like we had a really funny setup. So I'm a huge fan of composting toilets, happy to dig in on uh, other considerations there too. But I would say in general, it's something I think is really important for us to be paying attention to and to me making strides towards making official legal and available throughout the world, really. And for listeners, when you heard Lena say we're pooping into our drinking water, she's referring to our actual flush toilets where we're actually using potable water in most cases, which seems extremely wasteful. And for anyone who wants to dig in more to this topic, we spent a lot of time talking with Dr. Mark Nelson from Biosphere 2 in episode 57. Lena, what's your favorite resource or resources for learning how to build a composting toilet, whether you live in a tiny house, an ADU, or a regular house? I would encourage people to do two things. One is to check out the Humanor Handbook by Jay Jenkins. It is the premier guide about humanor in terms of understanding what humanor is, the history of how it's been used in the past, as well as how to safely manage humanor. His suggestions are for a kind of a particular scene, which is not true for a lot of city dwellers. So you need to get a little more creative, but that's why I would encourage the other part is to dive down the rabbit hole on the internet and see what other people are doing contemporarily, because there are so many people who are exploring this all over the world. There are people who are sanitation experts. There are people who are permaculture gardeners. There are people who believe that this is one of the easiest, simplest ways for us to create more closed loop systems that are going to help our species survive without polluting any more than we already have. And so I would encourage people to do some online research and do some exploring because there are a lot of amazing resources out there. The Rich Earth Institute here in Brattleboro, Vermont, is doing a lot of work with urine as a fertilizer, really important work there. And the Full Circle System, which is a human processing system, uh, was created by one of the people who's very involved with the Rich Earth Institute. So there are a lot of a lot of amazing resources out there, both on a on a large scale as well as things that people can do in their own home setting up a system. Pretty DIY and fairly inexpensive. And as far as urine in the garden, are you diluting this? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean hopefully all of us are hydrating well anyway, but in order to use urine as a fertilizer to dilute about eight parts to one before you go uh, fertilizing things. And of course, certain things need fertilizer at various times in their growth cycle as well. So it's important to be mindful of that and to not be putting it on the leaves of plants as much as fertilizing the soil so that those nutrients can be taken up by the plant without burning the leaves. Some plants don't like having their leaves wet, like tomatoes. They hate getting their leaves wet and they hate having sunburns. So you just want to be mindful of how you're fertilizing. No pee and no sunshine on the leaves. Got it. (laughs) Lena, how did you initially get into this world of tiny houses and ADUs and other small living spaces? 
My first introduction to this wave of the tiny house movement, and I say that because we humans have been living in tiny houses for most of our history, came via an article in Yes Magazine about Dee Williams. And a colleague dropped it off on my desk thinking I'd be fascinated by it. And I was. And at the time when I read this article about Dee, who is one of my tiny house heroes and an absolutely inspiring human being, you know, I had this reaction where I thought that's amazing and way too radical and I could never do it. And Dee is really amazing when it comes to her approach here. She, at the time that I saw this article, was living in her 84 square foot tiny house, which was only 14 feet long. She didn't have a shower in her house. She didn't have a refrigerator. So she was really living simply in this small space that she'd built with her own hands, with the help of some friends. And for, I think it was around ten dollars or $11,000 at that point, using a lot of salvage. And I didn't think it was something I could do, but I found it a really interesting design challenge. I've been fascinated by design my entire life. And so I started thinking about it. And it became this thought exercise of, oh, if I lived in a tiny house, would I still own this thing? If I lived in a tiny house, how would I spend my time? If I lived in a tiny house, who would I have over? You know, and so it became a really interesting thing to think about. And shortly after that, I had a, a big change up in my life and I ended up deciding to go to graduate school and study urban planning. And so that summer I bought a trailer and I took a workshop from Dee Williams and I got really inspired, but I also wasn't sure that it was realistic that I would be able to build my tiny house in three months before I left for grad school. Fortunately, I listened to that punch. And I didn't try to build my house that summer, but I rented a tiny house from a friend of mine who'd built one. So we moved it from Olympia down to Portland, Oregon, where I studied urban planning at Portland State University and did my master's of urban and regional planning. And I lived in a tiny house on wheels during that experience. And it helped me to figure out what did and didn't work for me. It was a beautiful little tiny house, Bayside Bungalow, built by my friend, Brittany Yunker. And it gave me a good sense of what I loved about her design and what I would want to have be different in mine. And ultimately, I ended up realizing that if it was just me and my cat, I didn't need a tiny house that big. So I ended up downsizing from a tiny house to a tinier house when I designed and built my own. And when you did design and built your own, that very first one was called Lucky Penny, correct? Correct. Will you tell us more about that space? It sounds like, you know, one big learning from your experience living in someone else's tiny house was it was simply, it wasn't tiny enough. How big was your tiny house, Lucky Penny? So Lucky Penny is just under 101 square feet. It was built on a 14 and a half foot long Vardo trailer. We call it that because it was a single axle trailer that was designed to have a relatively lightweight house built on it. And the house, there were a couple of features that were important to me as I was designing. The first was that I found a beautiful arch-topped window. And so pretty early on, decided I wanted to do a curved roof house, a Vardo, that was reminiscent of and inspired by the Vardos built by the Romani people. And the house has a curved back window, an arched door, and a couple of other large windows the roof is curved and it has a little skylight that pops up that is a tip of the hat to the Molly Croft roofs. That's the roof shape you see on a trolley car. And in the house, there's a bed at the back that was a very common thing to see in either a sheep herder's wagon or a Vardo. And that bed pulls out over the countertop. It uh, converts from the smaller version, which is what I use for the window seat, into a queen size bed for sleeping. And then there's also a small, pretty simple kitchen with a toaster oven and a fridge and freezer combo. Actually, they're separate, which is fabulous. I love having the freezer separate ice cream, you know, a little copper sink. It also has a tonsu, which is a Japanese storage cabinet that is stair-stepped, which is really neat because it enabled my kitty cat to go prowling up in the storage loft. There's a, a shower and a set of stacked dressers. So even though every place I parked, I was able to have access to either the primary dwelling or shower at work as I was a bike commuter or at the aerial studio, I appreciated having the shower as an option in case I ever was anywhere where I didn't have access. 
So yeah, it's a, it's a sweet little space. There's not a whole lot to it. I used to joke about giving people the grand tour when they stepped in the door. It's a neat space. And it was interesting to me how often somebody would walk into this hundred square foot space and say, wow, it's like a cathedral in here. Awesome. And there's a, a great video that we'll link to in the show notes in case anyone wants to see what this inside space looks like. We'll link to that at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Lena, tell us a little more about the cooking situation. Everything you did in the toaster oven or on the one burner, is that correct? So it depends. When I first built the Lucky Penny, I wasn't quite sure where I was going to park it, but I'd been in conversation with a group of people who were all interested in creating a tiny house community. And that community was called Simply Home Community. We ended up getting it going. I was one of the people who joined up in the early days. And in that situation, it was a tiny co-housing community. So we shared a primary house where we all had access to a kitchen, a living room, dining room. We had access to shared space in the basement for storage and laundry, bike shelter, tool shed, all the wood shop, all sorts of amazing amenities. And when I lived there, we would take turns cooking. So I would go cook dinner in the big house once a week and everybody else did the same. I wasn't doing meals really in my tiny house, you know, like fix myself a piece of toast and some tea, that sort of thing. But there were other situations I lived in where I wasn't as closely connected with the primary house. And in those situations, I found that I was able to cook up some pretty tasty things. You know, I made enchiladas, I made raspberry pie. There's all sorts of things that I could cook in the Lucky Penny kitchen. But it was funny how it was pretty easy to dirty every dish in the house in short order and end up with absolutely no space for anything else because I'd run out of counter space because it is a a tiny kitchen. But I was amazed at how much I was able to do even in that small space. So it sounds like, you know, one benefit of that community was being able to access a larger kitchen. What else about community living was really appealing for you? So many things. I loved being able to know that I'd have a pretty good chance of getting a hug on any given day. You know, if you're living alone, um, which I enjoy, I like living alone. But if you are living alone, there are times it can be a little lonely. As many of us now know. (laughs) So it was really nice just knowing that somebody would likely be around. It was amazing having dinner ready for me six nights a week without me having to cook it. It was really fun. There were a couple of kiddos in the community, as well as one of the people who I've dubbed one of my wise women who had a few years on me. And so it was neat having this multi-generational community and being able to have kids scampering around and people who had all sorts of different types of work that they were doing and interests and a lot of exposure to different movies and music and all sorts of different avenues for socializing as well as getting a hand with things. We did work parties, but we also would help each other out with things on a regular basis, which was really nice. Many of us, because we were interested in tiny houses, that was kind of a, you know, that was the main commonality that brought us together, had some design and building skills. So it was fun to work on projects with each other. And so even after I moved out of that community, I remained connected with a lot of the folks who lived there and they continue to be friends. And it's been fun to to watch things evolve over time. I ended up creating another tiny house community after that and enjoying living in that community as well. And uh, just seeing that each community has its own its own flavor, its own personality, but that many of those benefits of sharing space and time and resources are true across communities. I have a couple more questions about the Lucky Penny. You mentioned the shower and I was struck in the video about how efficient it was to have the little shower that had essentially like a garden hose sprayer so that you could turn the water off to lather your shampoo and really save water because I imagine you were just trying to be really conscious anyway environmentally, but also just because of the small water tank. Can you share a little bit more about that shower setup? Yeah. So it's interesting because I actually ended up moving away from the shower setup that's in the video for... The reason that although it was pretty cool to have that kind of garden hose set up, I thought it was going to work really well. And what it turned out was true was that the garden hose used a lot more water than a low flow showerhead would. Mm. So I ended up swapping out for a low flow showerhead 
with a pause button on the aerator. And I found that worked really well. So I had a four gallon water tank for my hot water, four gallon point of use water heater. And I found that that was enough to either do all the dishes or take a shower. Couldn't do both right after the other, but there was a 20 minute reset period in between the two. And so I ended up setting my water heater on a timer and it would heat up in the evening when I was home and then in the morning as well. And and it was nice to be able to not have it on in the times I didn't need it, but then to have hot water during the times that I did. During COVID, I ended up taking off the timer because I had a little more flexibility in my schedule, but I found that the four gallon tank was enough if I used the pause button. So I'd basically hop in and get wet and pause it and then lather up shampoo and rinse and then pause it and then lather up again and rinse. And it it worked really well. I I found that four gallons was enough for me to take a pretty comfortable shower as long as I did it with pauses. And you had a water hookup to the main house on the property in Portland. Is that how it would refill your four gallon tank? Yep. I always had a pressurized water supply coming from the primary dwelling wherever I was located. And the cold would feed to the sink as well as to the shower. And then the cold also fed to the hot water heater. And so the water heater then would feed to the sink and to the shower. And did you also have a power hookup from the main house? I did. Yeah. I tried it first off an extension cord just to really get a sense of what I needed. And once I figured out what I wanted for my electrical, I worked with an electrician to get myself set up. And I ended up doing a 30 amp service to the house, two 15 amp breakers, which gave me the ability to have one circuit on each side of the house. So one side had the heater, the other side had the water heater, and they also had lights. Most folks would do a larger panel and would do more circuits in the newer waves of (laughs) tiny house evolution. But at the time, that seemed like plenty. And it, it always, it was plenty. I couldn't run the toaster at the same time as the water kettle, for instance. But you figure those things out in pretty short order and learn to adapt. The toilet is a composting toilet, I'm assuming, right? Correct. In in each of the places I lived, I had access to the primary dwelling where I could use the restroom. So that was available to me, but I did design it in such a way that I could use a bucket style compost toilet as well. And the advantage of that, of course, is that if for some reason the other bathroom wasn't available, I could have access to it. And I'd love to chat about the fact that it's on wheels. You know, you now live in Vermont, but you did not take the lucky penny to Vermont, correct? It's still in Portland? That's correct. I'm renting it to a friend right now who's living in a tiny house community. I did think about bringing the lucky penny with me. I love her and I miss her, but I did not design the lucky penny for the New England climate. And I knew that it probably would not be the best fit for the lucky penny to be here in New England, where it gets very cold and very wet and then very humid and you know, the house doesn't have a wood stove or anything along those lines. So she does seem to like being in a temperate climate, but I'm living in an accessory dwelling unit right now, a really sweet apartment that's attached to a primary dwelling. And I'm living in community again and really enjoying that. There's a tiny house in the backyard that was built by my landlords. I helped them kick it off. My landlady, who's also a co-instructor that I teach with and also a friend, was a student in one of my tiny house classes at Yesterday. And so we've we've gone through a lot of evolutions, wear a lot of hats and adore each other. And uh, she and her husband are, are great friends and mentors and heroes of mine. And it's really neat to be in this community now where we've got a primary house that's got three folks who live in it. I'm in a little ADU studio apartment and they're in the tiny in the backyard. And it's a fun setup here. Awesome. I do want to return in a minute to asking you more about your classes that you teach at Yestermorrow and online. But first, the ADU that you're living in now in Vermont, how many square feet is that? You know, I just measured the other day because I was curious. I I had been estimating around 600. When I measured, I realized I was at 594. So I was pretty close. 594. That must seem gigantic after living in 100 square feet of the Lucky Penny. It absolutely does. I keep trying to figure out how to turn into a two bedroom, which I don't think is going to happen, <laughs> but it does. It's, it's huge. I find myself doing more body-based workouts in here because I've got the room for it, more dance parties, more 
stretching, et cetera. When COVID first started and I was living in the Lucky Penny, I was doing online aerial fitness classes and I found I could do those outside. But on rainy days, it was really hard to try to do them inside my hundred square foot house because the (laughs) center is 32 square feet. It's four by eight. It's the size of a sheet of plywood. And that was all the space I had. So it got to be pretty tricky. So, so it is nice to have a little more wiggle room here, but I, I, you know, personally, I don't need this much just for me, but uh, since the space is here, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I know you've also lived in a yurt. First of all, what makes a yurt a yurt? So a yurt is a building that's made out of something cloth-like supported on a frame that's often wood and it's round. And the yurt that I lived in was in the middle of a city block in Portland, Oregon. It was an amazing, magical little space, 12 foot diameter. So that one was about a hundred round feet, which is a different experience living in a hundred square feet, it turns out. But I, I really loved that little space. I had a bed and a mini fridge and a kitchen cabinet that had a water jug. I didn't have running water in the yurt, but I had a water jug that I would fill up at the spigot. And I think for me, one of the most amazing things about living in the yurt, besides absolutely falling in love with the light from above through the Oculus and really enjoying watching the moon and the stars and that sort of thing, was gaining a true appreciation for insulation and running water, realizing I could live without them, but how much nicer it is to have them. And so I found that I just don't take those things for granted ever. Every time I take a hot shower, I appreciate it. And it's not that I didn't have access to that. I was a bike commuter and I showered at school and so forth. But I just you know, started to really appreciate these things that so many of us take for granted as things that are, are luxuries of our time and place in the world and to be able to really appreciate them and to, as we design, to make spaces that are comfortable, that are safe, and also to know that there are a lot of things that we can do to be more efficient with our use of resources so that we are able to share more resources and support each other in having access to what we all need. How long did you live in the yurt? About a year. So all the seasons. I mean, I know Portland is temperate, but um, that's awesome. So you really got a chance to really experience all the different weather patterns. I did, yeah. It was a fascinating experience, especially because at the time, my commute, my bike commute to grad school in urban planning took me through this area um, where there were a lot of encampments. People who were experiencing homelessness had set up camps for themselves and found that I was a lot more mindful as I was you know, waving to people on my bike going through because they had just gone through the same night I had mm. in me in a glorified tent and them in a not glorified tent. And wondering, you know, if their water was frozen, wondering, you know, what their experience had been like and realizing that me having a place where I could be and know that my house would be there when I got home and know that I had a lock on the door and that I had access to a bathroom and all these other things. I just, again, really gained an appreciation for something that was a step beyond that, many steps beyond that. And yet also that there was a simplicity to what I was choosing to do an intentionality around what I was choosing to do to gain some of that appreciation and more respect for people who were living on the streets and to know that, you know, moving forward in my life, when I have access to other things, it is a privilege and it's something that I want to thoroughly enjoy and to help more people have access to, but to, to have what I need and to share what I can as a result of that experience. I'd love to talk a little bit about downsizing of stuff. In episode five of the podcast, we talked with Kendall Youngblood, also from Portland, Oregon, about downsizing as she and her family sold their large house and embraced life on the road. Is it true, Lena, that you downsized to 200 possessions when you moved into your 100 square foot Lucky Penny? Yeah, I'd actually done it before that. I did it before I moved into the yurt. But yes, I did what I called my 200 things challenge. That was inspired by a guy named Dave who has a website, or at least at the time, had a website and a blog called A Guy Named Dave. And he had done a 100 things challenge. Now, I find it a little funny the way he counted. So he counted, for instance, his library as one thing. 
Mm. That seemed cheaty to me. Um, <laughs> but he also was particular about counting pens. He had a thing about pens. So he had one pen. And that also seemed a little silly to me. So, <laughs> so I came up with my own way of counting. And I didn't count things that were sets or pairs, you know. So like I didn't count each shoe individually. I didn't count each sock individually. I think I counted like socks as a thing because I had, you know, two weeks worth and that was it that sort of thing. But it was really interesting as I was going through my possessions in preparation to move into the yurt, realizing that when I had first downsized from my 800 square foot house to move into the first tiny house that I rented, Bayside Bungalow, it had really been about volume. Like, would it fit? Does this thing fit in the space? And what was interesting was that as I did the 200 thing challenge, I started thinking about it in this count way instead Like, does this item count? Is it something that matters to me? Is this something I want to fit in my life? Not just will it physically fit in the space? And I think the most interesting thing that happened to me in that experience was that I found I was suddenly a lot lot less attached to my belongings in terms of loaning. I had been kind of shy about loaning things out before that. There was this worry that if somebody, if I loaned something and somebody ruined it in some way, then it might hurt our relationship. And I realized it was because I was more worried about the thing than the person. And so I found in that experience of paying more attention to owning less and enjoying more, I quit caring as much about the stuff. So that was a really interesting experience to go through and not something I had, had imagined would happen. I also was amused that downsizing to fit just 200 things when I moved out of the yurt, I had slightly fewer things. So that was an interesting experiment. I've let go of the number at this point. And chances are I have considerably more than that right now. When I moved across the country, I moved in my Honda Fit and so brought only what would fit with me. But then since have borrowed and purchased you know, some furniture in order to be comfortable in my new space. And And I'm not as particular about the number as I used to be. Again, I feel like it was a good exercise, a good thought experiment, a good thing to have tried. But I'm still particular about making sure that I'm not acquiring things just because they were free or easy to acquire. That I'm choosing things that I'm mindful about owning and maintaining and caring for and passing things on that aren't serving me anymore. Can you share a little more about the actual process of parting ways with your possessions before you moved into the yurt? So for example, was it one intense weekend or was it months of painful decisions? <laughs> um, by that point, it had already been a process. I'd already downsized from my 800 square foot house to live in a travel trailer and then a tiny house. And I was living in an ADU that summer as I was downsizing to move into the yurt. and. I'd taken advantage of a book called Unstuff Your Life by Andrew Mellon, which is one that I use when I teach my downsizing course. And it was interesting in going through that book to start to identify some of the stories we tell ourselves and some of the reasons that we hang on to things. There's, you know, things like the, oh, but I might need it someday. Or the, maybe someday I'll have time to. Or the, but I spent a lot of money on it. So those are some of the themes that we explore in the downsizing course that I teach. We focus on some other themes in the digital downsizing course that I teach. But I find that for a lot of people, and again, this is one of those things where downsizing implies that you have had access to enough to be in a place to downsize, right? There's certainly a lot of people for whom right-sizing actually means purchasing some things or acquiring some things in order to have enough. But for me... Downsizing was really about getting more clear about what it was that brought joy and fulfillment and meaning to my life. And I found that right sizing has varied over time. You know, when I was living in the yurt, 200 things was about all that fit, right? So that was about right. And now that I'm living in 600 square feet, I have more things, I think, but I also have more open space. And so that's nice too. I've found that most of the time I'm most comfortable in a space if there's a little wiggle room. Even when I was living in 800 square feet and I started that downsizing process, I found it was a lot more pleasant to be in that space 
once I cleared out the things that were aggravating or frustrating or not inspiring, and that even the bigger space I enjoyed more when I wasn't tripping over or dropping or (laughs) otherwise kind of having to shuffle things around to enjoy a spaciousness. What types of possessions were easiest to get rid of and which types were hardest to get rid of? I think one of the easiest things for me to get rid of was actually books, which I know a lot of people have a hard time with, but I have really loved being able to donate books to either my local library or if they're related in some way to design and building to Yes Tomorrow Design Build School, in part because I enjoy reading, but I usually only have a couple of books going at a time. And so knowing that I could share some of these books that I'd loved with other people and they could also have access to them made it a lot easier for me. I found that I just had to remind myself, worst case scenario, I'm going to have to put a hold on a book I once owned, right? And that was actually pretty easy for me to do. I've got, I think, well, I've got a few kids' books. I've got nieces and nephews, but I think I probably have less than 10 books right now. So that one was an easy one for me. I know for some people, that's going to be a completely different set of priorities. The hardest thing has, well, there were two that I found particularly hard. One was project-related stuff. I wrote a blog post about being haunted by unfinished projects because there were so many things that I had started and not finished and hoped that maybe someday I would have the time magically and make the time if I thought about it to finish that project. And one of them I still am ambitious about. I've not been willing to let it go, which was that I started a scrapbook back when I studied in Florence, Italy, which was now 17 years ago. And I am still not done with that scrapbook, but I have not let it go either. Keep thinking any winter now, we'll get around to it. So, you know, those kind of sentimental things. And I think that's true for most folks, the things that are sentimental or hard to part ways with. So that was a particularly tricky one because it was both a project and sentimental. The other is that I have a tub of journals. I started writing when I was nine, started keeping a diary when I was nine. And I think a lot of people find it a really cathartic experience to just burn all that stuff at some point. And I haven't gotten there yet. I, uh, I'm working on a memoir project right now. And so I'm finding it really fascinating fodder for story, but also just really neat to be able to reflect back. I've gone through some of this old writing of mine in the past as well. And I find that each time I do, I have a different take on it. So maybe someday I'll burn it all. But in the meantime, I've decided that as somebody who loves to write and tell stories and reflect and vision that It's something that's important to me to make space for in my life and in my physical surroundings. I'm one of the people who has 20 years worth of journals that went into a (laughs) recycling bin in Mountain View, California at a particularly pivotal moment for me. And who knows what other people found, but I found I actually couldn't stand to look through them. I found it was the same annoying things about myself that I'm still grappling with today. One of the things that was really interesting in one of the articles about you that we'll link to in the show notes, economist Robert Frank, who was a professor of mine at business school at Cornell, he talks about another reason why it's hard to get rid of stuff. And it's the fact that we can always remember throwing something out and then immediately, you know, the next week discovering we need it. And we don't remember the thousands of times when we throw something away and we actually didn't need it later. We only remember those few times and then we, they call it the availability heuristic. Anyway, so that was super interesting. And then the other thing he said that was interesting was he was fully supporting your commitment to embracing less material stuff and this whole equation of, you know, having stuff and happiness. And one thing he did say is that there are things that we can do to actually make us happier. He talks about, you know, spending your time and money on things like environmental noise, uh, which continues to grate on you and it never gets better, uh, or the issue of long commutes to work, or a job where we have no sense of control. And I thought that those were really, really three interesting things that were mentioned. It was a great article. Put that one in the show notes too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit about the digital downsizing, which you, you mentioned a minute ago. What is digital downsizing? Again, I think right-sizing would probably be the right thing to say here, but people don't know what right-sizing is typically. So we say downsizing. Right-sizing is 
figuring out what the enough point is for you. And downsizing is going from having more of something to less of it. For many of us, right-sizing does involve downsizing. So the digital downsizing course came about because I'd been teaching my downsizing e-course for years, and many people had benefited from it and said, Lena, what if you taught a a digital downsizing e-course where people can figure out how to streamline their digital lives, everything from email to photos? So we did that this year, taught that course for the first time this year, and one of the most fascinating things about it was realizing that I didn't, the format needed to be revised. So with the downsizing course, people work on their own in their own spaces to do some downsizing based on the set of lessons and challenges that I provide. And then we get together once a week to talk about it, to celebrate our triumphs and talk about the challenges that came up along the way. And with the digital downsizing class, what we found was that it was really hard to buckle down and get that stuff done on our own. And then talking about it was also a little bit tricky because everybody has such different systems. You know, one person might use one email program and somebody else uses another and somebody has a different file storage system and a different password manager. And so the technical troubleshooting of that was a whole different thing. And so what we ended up doing was we started doing work sessions together where we would work for a little bit, take a little break, And then we check in with each other at the end and see what came up. And so that's the format we're going to be using as I teach this fall. So it'll be kind of focused accountability sessions to help us work through this stuff together and address what comes up. So really looking forward to going through in that format with people and helping people to streamline their digital lives to get set up so that it's not such a stressful obnoxious experience to engage with our technology. Is there one tip you might share of how all of us might be able to minimize our digital clutter? I would suggest doing what I encourage people to do in real life when we do certain activities, different parts of the room, which is purgatory. And so I have set up on both my files system and in my email a purgatory where I can put things that I know I might need to refer to over the next month, for instance, and then they can be deleted with abandon, right? So for instance, right now I'm running the July and August purgatory folders. At the end of July, I'll be able to delete everything in that folder without any qualms. I don't have to review it. I can know it just can go away now. And so that's one thing I do to help myself feel like it's okay to hang on to something just as long as I might need it. And after that, I won't need it at all. I'd love to hear a little more about your courses. I know you teach at a place called Yes Tomorrow, which you've mentioned earlier. What is Yes Tomorrow? Where is it? And do you have any classes coming up? Yeah, Yes Tomorrow is a design build school in the Mad River Valley in Vermont. It's in Waitsfield, Vermont. And it has been around for about 40 years now. And It's an incredible place. I have thoroughly loved it in the 11 years that I've been going there. I started out as a student taking the Certificate in Sustainable Design and Building. The big idea behind Yes Tomorrow is that it's important that people be connected with the creation of shelter. So it's important that we learn how to design and build, that that iterative process is innate to our species and that by engaging with and learning about how to design and build, we can think and and learn in different ways. So the motto is think with your hands. And this year it was challenging to not be able to have as many people participating in as many in-person courses. So we've added more online courses to the curriculum and I'm working now as Yes Tomorrow's online curriculum coordinator. It's a part-time position and I'm absolutely loving it. So in addition to teaching, I teach there the tiny house design classes, tiny house design build classes. And I've also been involved with the tiny house design build certificate. I am helping coordinate our online programming. So this fall, I have upcoming an ADU design class, a tiny house design class, and a class called Cohousing and Beyond that's about cohousing communities. 
Oh, and there's also a kitchen bathroom design class. So those are the ones that I'm involved with teaching. And we've got an, a huge lineup of other online courses that people can take as well. In addition to the in-person courses, there's not a whole lot that beats uh, the Mad River Valley in terms of uh, swimming holes and creamies and beautiful scenery. So if people are able to make it out in person, that's great. But we're so excited that our online programming has also provided access for people from Alaska to Zimbabwe to be able to participate in the courses that we're offering as well. Awesome. Well, we will link to those in the show notes. But most importantly, is a creamy an ice cream cone or a milkshake? (laughs) What's a creamy? Sorry, I'm speaking in a local vernacular here. A creamy is soft serve ice cream if you're in the state of Vermont. Oh, okay. Lena, you also have a consulting company, Niche, and folks can find that at nichedesignbuild.com. And that's N-I-C-H-E-D-E-S-I-G-N-B-U-I-L-D.com. What are your consulting services like? Right now, I'm offering video consultations. If people are completely Zoomed out, also happy to talk to people on the phone. But I've been doing online video consultations as a way to talk with people about their particular circumstances. If they're looking to build an accessory dwelling unit on their property or interested in tiny houses, I also have done consultations about community and co-housing. So those are fun. This year, the workshops I'm offering in addition to the ones through Yes Tomorrow, I'm also teaching a tiny house considerations course with Ethan Waldman and an ADU considerations course with a Burlington architect, Missa Aloisi. So really looking forward to those. And I'm also, I have upcoming here, the digital downsizing e-course and the downsizing e-course. So providing opportunities for people to engage online with those programs as well. Lena, if we were to fast forward 20 years, do you think you'll still be living in a tiny space? Oh, golly. I think if we're going with the uh, definition from the universal or the international building code of 400 square feet or less, the answer is maybe. I think I probably would pretty comfortably be able to live in a space that's ADU size, 800 to 1,000 square feet. I think it would probably be pretty comfy for the long run. But I'll be so curious. I don't know. Let's check in then. Yeah, I'm super curious. You know, I know there's a lot of shows out there, Netflix series, et cetera, about tiny houses and tiny house living. Do you have one or two favorites or do you see these shows as sort of a glamorized version of tiny house life? Not unlike how van life has been quite glamorized recently. You know, it's interesting. I've watched a few episodes of various shows, definitely for the inspiration rather than the drama. (laughs) I don't have a favorite show. I actually don't watch much TV. I don't own a TV, so it's, you know, streaming shows. If I watch anything, I, I don't end up watching a lot. I'm more likely to watch a documentary, and that's probably evident in the fact that I've been in a couple of documentaries about tiny houses, but so far not on any of the shows. Most of the so-called reality about these reality TV shows is not real at all. They're fairly misleading with regard to pricing and timeframes, which unfortunately means that a lot of the people who are showing up for tiny house classes need to recalibrate expectations on what it actually takes in terms of time and money to get a tiny house built or an ADU for that matter. But I do think that what's been great about the shows is that they've helped to really spark conversation about enoughness and possibility. And there are more and more people who are aware of and advocating for the increase in housing choice that enables us to have access to more housing that more appropriately fits our household sizes, people's available income, people having access to resources that they might not otherwise, access to home ownership in unconventional ways, access to mobility. So I think that the awareness factor of the tiny house shows is fantastic. But I do think that it is a disservice to the movement that some of the facts get contorted in order to create drama so that people watch. Personally, I think they're interesting enough. There's enough trouble with just fighting the weather uh, to get something built. But you know, some people like their drama a little heightened beyond, <laughs> beyond mine, I suppose. 
Any book titles? I would say that the three books that I most often find myself recommending are Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin, which is a really good book for helping you think through what matters most and how can you get there. Home by Design by Sarah Suzanka, the one who has written the Not So Big House series, but also a book called The Not So Big Life, which is another good one by her. Home by Design is the book that she says she meant to write when she wrote the um, Not So Big House series. And in it, she outlines the design principles to make homes work well, which I find to be really inspirational. I don't believe it's her most popular book, but it's my favorite of her books. So I recommend it a lot. And then the other is Getting Things Done by David Allen. I know there are a lot of folks who are familiar with that one already, but I found that one to be really helpful in terms of learning to operationalize, to figure out what is the next thing that needs to happen in order to move this forward. And when you're designing and building small spaces, I think that thinking small and breaking it down to what's the next thing, what's the next little thing is the best way to get started. Awesome. Well, we're going to include all of those in the show notes at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Lena, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been so fun to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Kristen. It's been a pleasure. And for listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. If you liked today's episode, there are a number of ways to support the podcast, all of which are free. You can subscribe. You can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can share the episode with a friend. You can check out prior episodes. And you can stay in touch about new episodes by subscribing to our e-newsletter at northstarsleepschool.com. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.